Hey, it's Casey Cheshire from EO Boston. It's an honor for my team at Ringmaster to partner with EO Atlanta to produce this great podcast. If you're interested in an experience share around what it takes to launch a podcast, how to be a better host, or a great guest, shoot me an email at casey at ringmaster.com. And now back to the show. Entrepreneurship is hard. So let's fix that and dive into our hero's journeys. This is Taking Flight, an entrepreneur's journey, and I'm Sarah Torville. Join me as we delve deep into the passions, expertise, and experiences of those already in flight. This show is sponsored by EO Atlanta. Well, here we are again for another, what I'm expecting to be very, very exciting and educational um, Entrepreneur's Flight podcast. I'm really, really delighted to have our guest join us today. He is a leader, an entrepreneur, an investment manager, real estate developer, co-founder and managing partner at Banyan Investment Group, Andy Chopra. Welcome, Andy. Yeah, great, Sarah. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Uh, it's an honor to, to be featured on your podcast and look forward to spending uh, the next hour with you. Yeah, I'm excited. So excited to have you here. So I want to get straight into it. There's a lot I want to ask you and a lot I know our listeners are going to want to learn from you. So Andy, when you took your first flight into your entrepreneurial journey, what did you get right? What did I get right, man? Many entrepreneurs uh, probably don't think about this question. We always focus on what what we got wrong. And, and yeah. what I like to say is, you know, opportunities for improvement. But what I'll say about getting it right um, in, in, in no particular order here, it was going into a field or a, uh, an industry, maybe is a better way to put it, um, that I already had familiarity with. Uh, I grew up in the hotel business, and although we are a commercial real estate investment firm, we primarily focus on hotel investments. So um, I had a good idea of the operational side of hotels as a class of real estate, which really sets us apart from other classes of real estate. Um, you know, you're really buying sticks and bricks, as I call it, and then the business that's housed within the sticks and bricks. So in order to drive value for your building, you have to operate a profitable business. So coming up as an owner-operator had, um, or an owner-operator family, I should say, had a good familiarity of, you know, how to, how to maximize margins um, as an operating hotel without with minimal sacrifice, I should say, to the guest experience. So um, going into an industry that I, I understood um, was what I got right, uh, going into um, business with uh, with a partner who had a very similar background to me. Um, it's uncanny, actually, how similar our backgrounds are. <laughs> and uh, uh, we, we met each other about 22 years ago when I first moved to Atlanta. And um, it turns out that we were both born, and I, you know, I met him socially, of course. Uh, his name is Rakesh, and it uh, turns out we were both born at the same hospital in Toronto, Canada, 40-some-odd years ago. That's <laughs> incredible. Just, oh, my God. It took God. us two, two and a half decades or so to finally meet. Um, and then, uh, yeah, um, you know, he grew up in a hotel family as well. And so, again, leveraging our collective knowledge. Um, along with our collective Rolodexes to go out and really start to scale an investment management platform, um, I think was one of the key contributing factors to, you know, to, to success, really what we got right, right, to answer your question. Right, right. Um, and the third one, I don't know if this would be the, uh, getting it right, because when I, when I married my wife, Erin, um, I was not an entrepreneur yet, although I was getting close to taking that, that step and beginning the journey. Um, but I would say, you know, looking back on it, having a, a, a supportive spouse and really network of family and close friends that are there um, at the beginning when it's a roller coaster. Well, let's be real. It's always a roller coaster, but at the beginning, especially when you're really bootstrapping and, and, you know, just trying to figure stuff out, having that support network around, um, around me, I thought was in hindsight, um, incredibly valuable. And, um, I'm not sure, uh, well, I'll be frank. I'm not sure it would have made it without it. Yeah. Three very, very great things you got right. It sounds like. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And so just, I wouldn't mind asking you if you don't mind, um, 
the family background. So you mentioned like hotels and the family. Can you just share that with me a little bit? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Uh, my father um, started his entrepreneurial journey as a hotel, as a hotelier in uh, the early 80s. Um, so I mentioned earlier, I was born in Toronto. We moved to Florida uh, when I was, um, gosh, in kindergarten, not even kindergarten, like, like pre-K. And uh, we uh, we lived in a hotel room. Um, you know, there was uh, a, a hot plate that my mom used to cook at, and we lived in the hotel rooms, and you didn't have to pay rent anywhere, right? And you just uh, commute to the office downstairs, which I guess a lot of us are doing today anyways. Yeah, this old man was a bit of a trendsetter with this uh, work from home uh, uh, themes that we've all experienced lately. But yeah, I mean, he didn't, you know, he didn't, he had some friends that were in the hotel business and they encouraged him to move to Florida where they were located to get into it. But that was, that was the extent of his knowledge. Right. right. So, uh, my, my background is uh, my family's from India and, um, entrepreneurial, um, uh, I guess, uh, energy, um, is, is pretty prevalent in India and as particularly with immigrants. Yeah. And so, you know, there was, a, I always say that, you know, he, um, in a way, kind of burned the boats coming over here. They you know, didn't grow up with a ton of means. And, you know, you, you, you screwed and saved to come here. It was a one-way ticket. So you better succeed, right? And it's I true. think as entrepreneurs, we all, we all have that in us, but perhaps in, in immigrants, it's a, it's a bit exacerbated and amplified. Yeah. So anyway, um, he grew up and then um, I grew up in the business. Uh, he had a series of partnerships over time. A few partners uh, decided, you know, not to keep going. He stuck with it and ended up buying everyone else out. Um, at that point, we had in, we were in uh, a small town in Western Kentucky, uh, called Paducah, Kentucky. Um, at that point, he bought everyone else. So we're not moving anymore. This is home. And he ended up developing a few properties there and never had partners. And and up until his retirement a few years ago, um, went to the hotel six days a week, signed payroll checks every two weeks, monitored time by, I mean, a true operator. Right. And for me, I never realized, Sarah, that I grew up in a real estate family until well after college. Right. Because although I, I had seen hotels develop, my dad had involved me as much as he could, given that I was in high school at the time, an invaluable experience, by the way. Um, I grew up looking through the lens of an, of an operator, right. not necessarily a developer. So it didn't strike me until I finished graduate school or I started a program for my master of science in commercial real estate and finance. And I had them like, well, hold on a second. Like, yeah, this is what, this, what there, it is. Right. Yeah. There's more to the hotel, a lot more in the hotel, another, more ways to drive value, I should say, yes. yeah, in the hotel business. Um, than just showing up every single day and being an operator. You can pay people to do that. Yeah. Let's go scale and let's yeah. let's really create value and sticks and bricks through you know through efficient asset management and surrounding ourselves with really smart people. So, yeah. um, you know, in in I'll, I'll share one more thing with you. I I have a distinct memory, and I'm 45 years old. I have a distinct memory of when I was in sixth grade. So that would have made me what around 11 or so. And again, this is in Paducah, Kentucky now. And I'm, I'm at a sleepover with some friends. And none of my, it's a small town, right? None of my, none of my friends in school had, you know, were, were part of entrepreneurial families. They were all you know, doctors and engineers. And, I, and I remember um, one, of, one, of, one of the boys at the sleepover, we were talking about um, what we wanted to kind of be and want to grow up, blah, blah, blah. And there was, uh, for those of us who still get the newspaper, you know, the rolled up newspaper on the driveway, there was one sitting in my friend's kitchen and, and he hands it to me. He goes, put it under your arm. And I put it under my arm and he goes, walk around. And I was like, ha ha. I start walking around. He goes, that's going to be you. You grow up. I can see you being a business owner. I, said, I didn't even know I was projecting anything like that. But if you know, when I think about these things, it's interesting to me because it's like, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's just, I guess you're a product of your environment and what you grew up. And it, I never questioned in my in my mind that I wouldn't work for myself one day. Like it, right. it wasn't even like it wasn't even like this pipe dream. It wasn't this oh well, you know, ten things have to, a thousand things have to go right in order for me to do it. It was always like it's it's going to happen. Wow. I'm going to make it happen. And after I cut my teeth in the corporate world, um, it's up to me to 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 um, you know to to have. To have my own name on um, my own name on the signature line of a paycheck on the front of the check. Yes, yes, very important. I don't want my, my name on the back of the check. I want it on the front of the check. Yeah. And I just never questioned it. 
And again, going back to the support network, I think people around me, again, now in hindsight, even from childhood, I think always had that belief in me. And it was in my brain, it was always a matter of grit, effort, and time, not what is. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you definitely saw that in your father, for sure. I mean, you're right. When you come over as an immigrant, you got to make it work. Um, And he... um, and then you saw it day by day, living in the hotel with him. I and mean, it's like, gosh, you just had it. You saw it firsthand. I, I was, I mean, we were, you know, I, I say he put me to work and I certainly don't mean that in a, in a negative or diminutive way. He put me to work so I could learn. Yeah. And, you know, as a child, I would follow um, housekeepers around, help them clean rooms. I spent mm-hmm. some just working with the maintenance yeah. people. Um, you know, graduate all the way up to the front desk and finally yeah. the accounting side of the equation. And again, it didn't, it never felt like, it never felt like I was showing up to a job. It was uh, family business. And it's like, hey, yeah. this is what I need. This is what I should be doing. Yeah. That's, I'm just thinking of, I'm thinking that through a little bit more. And I don't want to harbor on this point, but I just feel that the exposure you get, because I've had exposure to a hotel, not as much as you have. Um, but my, I just tell you this because I'm trying to, I can see some, to some extent what you've gone through and how impactful it's been. But my mother was always, um, a pretty senior person in a group of hotels. Um, and they're down in Bournemouth on the South coast of England. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, as my mother, who was quite a big wig in the hotel, she kind of would jump from hotel to hotel. I was just in those hotels from a very early age. I started at the age of 10 years old working in the laundry room um and so you're right so it was like laundry room chambermaid um yeah you're now serving people I never actually made it to checking people in I kind of wasn't quite quite good enough maybe even to the point where we said I mean I'm 50 so we put the phone lines in the old cable yeah all of that oh yeah and I hadn't actually thought about until you're saying it now just the the importance forget about the operations but even just the interactions of people all yeah. those different things that you had exposure to, Andy, is like, and then a lot of kids don't even get any of that until they get their first time job and they're 16 years of age. Right. Yeah. Right. So I'm just. Yeah, that's, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. it's the way that shapes and forms someone um, is, yeah. in, is invaluable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, to have that, uh, that exposure at a young age, it, yeah. how could it not shape someone? Yeah, no, you've, I mean, you've had firsthand experience, but we're going to get onto more of that in a minute. So it's got me realizing and thinking about something. So thank you for that. Um, So my next question, like you kind of partially answered it, answered it, but I want to see if there's anything else. So who are your co-pilots on this journey? I know you've mentioned your wife and I can, I know how important that is to have a great spouse. And maybe we can talk more about that, but is there anybody else? And you mentioned a business, business partner, but I'm just keen to see if there's anyone else. Yeah. So as I mentioned, my business partner, you know, I would, I would think I would, I would call other co-pilots, um, you know, integral, look, all team members are important. There's no doubt. I don't even, I don't even like calling team members. I call them stakeholders, but we have a key group of executives that are work on uh, with us. I, I hate the term boss, by the way, and I hate the term work for me. I, agree. <laughs> I was going to say collaborate, work with us because I, look, I, if I'm, if yeah. I'm, if I ever feel like I'm the smartest person in the room, I better get the hell out of that room. Like really yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, other uh, key co-pilots, uh, I would say the executive team that we're privileged enough to work with, that have chosen to work with us. Um, these are some really, really smart people, and they're valuable as co-pilots because we have an, we fostered an environment truly of collaboration in our firm. And I know I know that word gets thrown around a lot, but what I mean by that is, and this is actually something I learned in EO. All of our executive committee meetings are, and they're weekly, by the way, with my co-pilots, are no rank, no order. So I remember listening to uh, uh, or attending an EO uh, talk uh, here in Atlanta years ago, and um, it was uh, a, a former uh, Air Force fighter pilot, and he was in a full flight suit doing the presentation. Now he does you know, kind of executive coaching, and Jim Murphy's his name. Plug. I don't know. He, you know, he posed a question that I never even thought about. It was some basic, right? He's in his flight suit. And he's like, does anyone know why um, all of our badges, particularly our rank, are on, are on Velcro? Right. So I've always noticed that. I never thought about it. I don't know. 
And the answer was because after flight training or a mission, we all regroup in a closed room environment, take off our badges, and really have frank discussions about work and more importantly, what didn't work and how to improve. Because if we don't do it that way, people are going to die. Right. Fairly dramatic, I know. But the point was, we have to be able to have open, honest communication with one another, right? If I could, because again, I acknowledge I'm not the smartest person in the room. Yeah. I want to surround myself with smarter people. And those people have to be able to have um, fun, diplomatic, and down-to-earth conversations. That's why I say those co-pilots are successful in our entrepreneurial journey, because they do that. Yeah. When I'm wrong, tell me. If I make a mistake, yeah. I'll be the first to admit it. I'll be the yeah. first to fall on my sword, but I'll also be the first to say, I learned from it. Yeah. It will happen again. Yeah. No, I agree. So what? So we're moving, it means like we're taking off any hierarchy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. It doesn't matter whatever level you are in the company. We say it as we, if we mean it, kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And as long as we're, we're have a sense of diplomacy, then all good. It's being people, right? It's just yeah. like, you know, let's be, let's be real and honest with one another and do it in a productive way. Yeah, no, I agree. That's, that's fabulous. Yeah. Really great. I'm hoping we got some great listeners here because, you know, we're learning a lot. I'm learning a lot. And we're only 17 minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Okay. So tell me like, what, like what challenge are you kind of really working on right now and like or a challenge that you've had to solve recently? Is there something you can share with us? And how did you do that? Yeah. Yeah. So we're going through a, um, a, a really um, wonderful, I'll say, um, transition. Um, and, and I hesitate to use the word pivot, but we are looking at and instituting now uh, fairly uh, major changes within our company. So anytime there's change, there's challenge, there's also opportunity. Um, but what we're really going to focus on, so, you know, leading up to really this year, 2022, we were, we are, uh, we, well, I'll say we, because <laughs> we haven't I... officially launched yet. Okay. So I don't want to, I don't want to pull the curtain back too soon. Up until 2022, our company was seen as both a hotel management company and investment company all in one. Right. Now we've intentionally put up a curtain between our property management company and hired um, a very uh, capable, skilled, seasoned, um, and well-respected hotel better to be the CEO and president of that platform. That's set aside. The curtain on our side, on my side, is going to be focused purely on investment management. So really what I've been doing anyway, but um, uh, you know, the, one thing that I say quite a bit is I I kind of joke when I say this, but it's the truth. Um, I don't know why we put locks on the front door of a hotel. It's a 24 7 business. Yeah. You ever have to use this? Probably something major. Going on. <laughs> right. I never so, even noticed a lock on the front door of a hotel. But yeah. Right. Right. So, and, and I say that to say every time we would grow and buy another hotel and our, our, our unit growth would increase, there would be very subtle yet real pinches to bandwidth. Right. So when my partner and I were first starting, I would say from one to about nine to 10 hotel properties still had pretty good balance. And I don't, I don't mean work-life balance. By the way, I don't believe yeah. that thing is work-life harmony. Okay, for a right. okay. Um, But it was more about just, you know, are we going to be, are we really good at operations or are we really good at, at, cap at identifying opportunities, capitalizing and growing in terms of increasing our unit count? It's the latter that drives me. But the former, unfortunately, every time we grew, was pinching more and more bandwidth. Right. So when we, when we got to around 20 or so properties, it, it started to become, it was just too much. It's like, yeah. you know, what, what are we going to be when we grow up? Yeah. Um, personally, what fulfilled me was the investment side of the equation. That's a fill my cup. Fortunately, my partner was the same way. So that's what led to the curtain. Here we are now. Right. But the challenges associated with that is really, um, uh, I mean, there's there's many challenges. One, it's it's... It's slowly but surely changing the perceptions of the investment community as they look at us, right? Um, before we were always dropped in the bucket of operator. And now it's like, hey, we'll invest for invest for management, invest manager. And look, we've done almost half a billion dollars in AUM in our in our 12-year history. So, you know, this certainly isn't our first rodeo in, in being an investment manager. And we've done it in a series of ways. 
Mm -hmm. um, everything from relatively unsophisticated races with friends and family to super sophisticated races in, in large complex fund structures. Um, the other challenge is, is again, assembling that team. I think any entrepreneur is listening right now understands that despite certain economic headwinds out there, the, the market for talent is still pretty tight, right? So being able to intelligently put that team together and make sure it's worth their while, not, not purely from a monetary standpoint, but even a culture standpoint, back to the collaboration and like, look, you're, a, you're, yeah. you're, we're all, we're all in the same team. Right. Yeah. We're all going to win together or lose together. Um, and hopefully it's one together. Um, I'd say um, another challenge, and this is probably true of anyone that's listening right now that's in commercial real estate, is just a general macro um, wins around capital markets. It's shocking to me how quickly things have changed um, in terms of uh, both debt, being able to obtain financing. So remember, we're commercial real estate. We are capital intensive right like we have to use leverage to to drive returns it's, it's just normal for us um the cost of that leverage has in in certain instances nearly tripled in the last nine months I, i've i've never seen anything like that and um there's a whole separate podcast on how why that is but it makes it challenging to uh to capitalize uh, transactions and it's also you know all the headlines with the talk of potential impending recession and, and choppiness in the equities markets is causing institutional investors and retail investors who would normally invest alongside us to um, to really scrutinize every deal. And, and, and honestly, they should, but I think the headlines are creating... Um, yeah, people are nervous and questioning everything. Yeah. So just going back to like um, you're talking about like the curtain, you're kind of separating the two companies. So are you creating a separate? I mean, I don't want you to give everything away here. So, mm -hmm. but I mean, I'm I'm thinking about our listeners and like you know, I think you, you, when you're growing your business, like you say, you get to a pivotal point where something has to change. Um, you know, for various reasons, like growth reasons or just appetite, your own professional appetite. You realize which side you wanted to be on. Um, you know, what is like this? What does that look like? How do you go ahead and how are you making that change? Like, even from a people standpoint, is it like, okay, you want to come over this side? Like, how are you, how are you just deciding that? It's a metamorphosis that it, it, it's a, it's a major, major um, evolution. Right. And it's not one that occurs overnight. It's one that has been in process for the greater part of 18 months now. Right. Um, and it, it is, it is a, it's a tremendously important to get the strategy right. I would argue, argue infinitely more important to tactically execute correctly. Yeah. Right. So, um, and that's really why we've been thoughtful and methodical um, about this. We've involved external consultants. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Good. Um, to really uh, to help us identify blind spots. Um, yeah. we, we've uh, involved external consultants to assist with branding and how to get the messaging out. Good. Um, and again, that's formally going to launch here in the next uh, few weeks. But um, so sneak peek again. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and I think it also involves um, a lot of introspection. And, you know, the... Um, Look, the pandemic was impactful in everyone's life. There's no doubt about it. You know, for us in the hotel space, it was especially impactful to our business in general. Yeah. I, yeah. I I refuse to look at it though through this um, you know lens of pessimism and you know why did this happen to me? I look yeah. at it more as like hey, it's a tremendous opportunity to really think about you know what what uh, is fulfilling and yeah. let's start working down down that path. Yeah, and that's, and that's what, what you're doing. doing. That's what yeah. you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So good. Okay. Love, love to hear all that. There's so much, it sounds like you're going through a lot right now, but it's all very, very positive. Um, so glad to see as well that, you know, like you say, you've, you've taken COVID and, but you're, it's, it's really forced you and sounds like you wanted it to, to reshape where things are going. So it's nice to hear that. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, many entrepreneurs I know go and choose that book. 
There's many books we use, but when you're going through something difficult, there can be a really good book. I don't know if there's something, a book you want to speak to right now that's helped solve that problem, that specific problem or something in general, a book you want to share. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, Sarah. I, up until a couple of years ago, I was primary, I've always been a, a, a voracious reader, but I view reading um, over the last, or let's just call it the first eight or 10 years of my entrepreneurial journey as, as an escape. So I would generally read like more fiction books or books on travel, travel, yeah. my wife and I's passions. Um, but during the pandemic, I really started getting into um, podcasts and back to business books, right? right. Again, thinking about this evolution and like, yeah. let's get smart about, you know, that, um, uh, things that can drive um, the future success of the company. Mm -hmm. The one book that really stuck out to me that I've read recently that um, I reference very often and I think about very often is The Making of an American Capitalist. It's the autobiography of Warren Buffett. I'm sorry, the biography. Not, not, the okay. biography. Yeah, he didn't making, The Making of an American Capitalist. Okay. Yep. And um, a friend of mine, a um, very successful entrepreneur, I have a lot of respect for, uh, Satosh Govindaraju down in Tampa. He, he had recommended it. Um, and he, he got a lot of uh, success out of it, or a lot of um, uh, nuggets of wisdom, I suppose, yeah. out of it. So um, in reading that book, uh, and I tell you, the timing was amazing because um, I had always had, a, I, I think like most people, I guess, a topical level of respect for Warren Buffett, but to really hear his story, but more importantly, understand his conviction as it relates to sticking to his core values was just um, incredible to me. Right. Look, I do most of my books on 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 uh, the iPad now. But for whatever reason, I could only find this book like old school. Right. <laughs> it's like the page, just like a, a software cover. Uh, what do you call yeah. it? Software. I probably not since grad school have I dog-eared, highlighted, and taken notes. <laughs> you were <laughs> annotating. Is that the right word, my children? There you go. That's the yeah. word. I mean, annotating. Yeah. And, um, but it talks about his story. You know, he didn't achieve a, a huge level of success until he was around my age, which was right. inspiring to me. But, yeah. but I'd say the biggest takeaway was just sticking to core values and, 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 and really um, following, uh, not following, um, identifying, I should say, really sticky trends and sticking to it and not, not chasing shiny objects, just right. figuring out what you get at and just rinse, wash, and repeat. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to be said in that. I think that shiny new object thing, I think when you're starting out, even in the first definite five years, is you're like this. Yes. Constantly. Yeah. And then and then it's so nice when you can go, you know what? No, I know, I know what I need to be doing. Okay. Yeah. You, you make you know, you're still learning. There's another level of learning, but to be able to turn those shiny new objects away and know what is shiny and what is not relevant is, is really satisfying, but it takes a while. It's like it's an entrepreneur's DNA, right? Yeah. So we see a shiny object and run after it. Yeah. And, and this is just anecdotal from my observations. Yeah. But some of the most successful entrepreneurs I know, you know, they figure out what they're really good at. Yeah. Then just just run straight towards it. Right? Yeah. A shiny object may show up from time to time, but that, that doesn't yeah. slow down. They may glance over and look at it and keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Or or dog ear it and come back to it when you're ready. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. exactly. So good. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm loving our conversation. You know why? Because every time I've got my next question I want to ask you, I feel like we dipped into it, which I just think is great because it's like you, there's a whole series of different things you got, you're going through. And I can feel this excitement from you, Andy. And I think that's great because my next question is, what excites you about the future? And I think you've touched on it, but I want to hear. Yeah. I mean, I know you're about to launch. You can't share too much, but what can you share? Well, you know, I can share that we are um, we are scaled now. We've got the right team to really go out and execute and grow. And we measure growth in asset center management. So, as I mentioned earlier, and this is all documented. I mean, my team is aware of it, and we're working. Everyone's march, steadily marching towards this goal. But mm -hmm. we, in our history, we've had a half a billion in asset center management. Um, but of course, we bought and sold properties. Currently, we're uh, right around I think two hundred seventy million in AUM. Our goal is simple. It's a billion dollars in asset center management within the next 18 months. Right. Um, and I don't really know what that means, though. 
I hear the number, but what does that asset management mean? Meaning you're taking care of all these hotels and they add up to this value? That's correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If we were to appraise every hotel in our portfolio in 18 months, it okay. should equate to at least a billion dollars. So I should okay. say commercial real estate property. So that's what that's um you know, that that's the that's the mission. What really excites me about it though yeah. is is now that the team is assembled, watching them execute, right? And and I know that's that's intangible, but watching them execute, watching them succeed, you know, watching virtual high fives when a deal yeah. is a contract to buy or sell, um, nothing drives me more than than seeing the team excel in in being able to really chase their you know their their passion, so to speak. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And by being able to do that, I know that they're going to show up ready to execute every day, continue to roll in the same direction. And if the team is successful, the company's successful. If the company's yeah. successful, then I'll achieve level of success. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something I've only recently learned. Um, I think, in, in, I don't know, maybe every entrepreneur goes through this, but particularly when you're in bootstrapping mode, you're always looking at the bottom line, bottom line, bottom line. You're the last person to get paid. You know, now I've, I've realized that it's about top line growth, taking care of really smart, good people. And if all yeah. that works out, it's going to work out for. I agree with you. Yeah, I, I, I think many of us would feel that we've all become more empathetic leaders. Maybe COVID has something to do with it. Maybe growing up had something to do with it. Um, but I feel the same as you do. I, I take great satisfaction from seeing my team succeed. Um, and of course, that normally correlates to the company succeeding, but even just seeing them succeed is like, it's, is really not just because you created it. It's because, isn't it nice when people are winning? Yeah. You know, like, I don't mean always commercially winning. I, I just mean winning on their own goals as an individual. And you are, you know, you know, they're making it happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's, that's important. Yeah. yeah. Very important too. So great. You got so many good things ahead of you. I'm excited for you. So um, who are you? So pre-flight, Andy, take me through a little bit of, um, what were some kind of key milestones which happened to you before you started really kind of setting up your own company? Oh, wow. Uh, it was just a little <laughs> bit of background. Yeah. Um, so when I graduated from university, um, this was 20, undergrad, of course, this was now, uh, back in 2000, it's 22 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I... I was a business major and I, in, in the, in the back of my mind, part of my mind, I thought, okay, you know, all my, well, a lot of my friends are, excuse me, interviewing for big jobs. And I was too, but I always knew like in, in that, like, if I don't get the job I want or I'd like, um, I'll, I, I'll move back home and join the family business. And there had never been any formal discussions around this, by right. that was a big assumption made by me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd say one of the, and again, from college onwards, there was a few indelible moments that I really think shaped my life. And I think that first one leading up to graduation was a conversation with my father. And he said, he didn't say no to joining the family business. But he said, you know what? I think it would be valuable for you to join the corporate world for a few years. See how the world kind of works. Yeah. Right? Um, and I was like, not necessarily I wanted to hear, but yeah. like, you know what? I respect my old man, smart. Okay. Yeah, I should I should probably do that. I was fortunate enough to get a job with Johnson & Johnson. Let's talk about a big, big company experience. Very big companies, yeah. Um, and they moved me to to Atlanta um, right out of college, which is a whole funny story. I mean, they were like, you know, they're used to hiring very experienced, seasoned people. And I was part of this college um, uh, cohort that they, they had hired. It's funny how HR doesn't really change your policies. So I remember getting a phone call one day, like, hey, we're sending a moving truck on date X. And I'm looking around like, dude, I have a mattress and a couple of <laughs> those are my possessions. Like, what do you mean? So yeah. anyway, a little bit inside. But um, but you know, here I am now joined a Fortune 50 company. I was fortunate enough to to learn how big, large, well-respected machine, I mean, Jane Jay's one of those well-respected companies in the world operate. You know, when I think about even core values that I that I helped craft for my company today, I, um, I instantly think about J and J's credo, which you know, there's, there's there's Harvard Business School 
courses, classes, case studies designed around that, right? So you want to make key takeaways was, you know, just the, the importance they placed on culture and values, how it guided all their decisions. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to, to have uh, Johnson & Johnson offer to pay for my MBA, right? Which led to that light bulb moment that I spoke about a little bit earlier. Um, other things that shaped me was uh, were the um, uh, great financial crisis. So um, leading up to the crisis, I had recently left J&J. And remember, I'm coming from healthcare. Right. So my ear is not nearly as tuned to uh, what was going on in the finance markets. And so I had put an offer on a couple of hotels here in Atlanta, again, thinking I'd be another operator. And luckily, the offers were not accepted. Had they been accepted, I'm convinced we would have handed the keys back because it was the GFC was devastating the economy in general. Yeah. But the um, uh, you know, one again, the, that shifting moment was that it was that exercise that started conversations between my now business partner and I about, hey, you know, um, what happened in the early 90s, for example, was this major crash in real estate values. Like maybe we shouldn't be looking at this as an wow. operators, do something bigger, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in his uh, his side of the business, his family's business, they were already a little bit further along than we were in terms of. Um, looking at it through the the lens of the investment world so i think um you know being able to join uh a jv fashion with him was another pivotal moment that um had it gone differently and we're probably not sitting on this podcast today or maybe I'm right. doing something else. who knows um it was interesting right around that time i shared earlier how uh, we have a passion for travel and um, I also shared how we had offered in a couple of hotels and it didn't work out. And I started to think at that time, I said, you know what, maybe, and I was newly married, by the way, mm -hmm. maybe this isn't just in the cards. Um, how can I, how can I figure out a way to capitalize on this passion for travel that we have? So I went through this arduous process and eventually got accepted into the U.S. diplomatic corps in the foreign service. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. And at the time, I was like, I mean, I was so proud of it, quite frankly. Yeah. 200,000 people apply every year, only 2,000 make it. So uh, that was awesome to get the news. But I mean, I don't what, even know what that is. You, what What is that? What do you do? Oh, that means I would have been working at um, uh, basically embassies around the world for the US government. Right. Okay. I focused primarily on what they call like, the economic cone. So just helping with economic policy. Right. Uh, in the local country if they need right. it and yeah, more yeah. In large companies that want to do business in those countries. Right. So, but you, know, you can see the world, right? Yeah, and, definitely. You get you get reposted. Sometimes you get in some not so nice places. Other times you're in some amazing places. Usually as a rookie, it's not too nice places, but yeah. eventually you end up in Paris, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, I mentioned my wife. She was super supportive of whatever decision I wanted to make. And uh, now remember, I've already left J&J, &J, so now I'm not even earning a paycheck any longer. Right. And she uh, was working, uh, she was in banking, so she had a still pretty relatively stable job despite the GSC, uh, the great financial crisis. Um, so then it was a pivotal moment, right? I've got, I've got my wife supporting us, thank God. Yeah. Um, so I don't have that stress away from me. I've got, we, we have this amazing opportunity to pick up, move to DC, and then start, you know, hopscotching around the globe. Mm -hmm. Or I've got these conversations going on with my now business partner about doing something bigger and better. Mm -hmm. um, I ultimately decided to to go down the third path um, because after really thinking about it, I said, look, I've got this education in commercial real estate, this light bulb moment that I grew up in a real estate family. I know I can do this. Now I've got a partner I can work with to help really uh, accomplish something. And um, after discussing with my wife, she's like, look, I'm, I'm still working. So if we fail now, then we don't have much to lose. Yeah. So uh, off we went. And there we you go. Our, made that our, decision. We bought our first deal in, um, in, in, in under contract in 2000, late 2009, bought it in 10. And um, I can say now, I can laugh about it now. We know what the hell we're doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who would John Fenner does? Let's be real. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But you learn. That's how you learn. Right. But we figured it out. And luckily, we had um, you know, very patient friends and family capital behind us. Right. And um, and we ended up uh, uh, succeeding not only in that deal, but many, many others. And, yeah. yeah. Good. The rest is history. 
The rest is history. Yeah. So those are, I mean, look, there's many pivotal moments, I think, but those are three yeah. that come to mind. Yeah. Really good ones. Really good ones. So introspection question. And if you were to do this all again, would you do it all over again? I'm going to the yes. I don't think about that because I, I'm like many entrepreneurs. I mean, I, well, I think many entrepreneurs feel this way. I'm one of those yeah. Like I, even, <laughs> even, yeah. Even when I was employed in my mind, I was an employee. Yeah. You know, although I valued my experience in the corporate world, I mean, my first few weeks there, I, I was clamoring to get out. Yeah. My brain, like I said, it's just not wired for that. No. So, short answer is yes, I'd do it again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are there things I would change? Sure. But it's funny. Yeah. But I were faced, if it was 15 years ago, I was faced with three same decisions again. I can say, and unequivocally, I would have chosen. Yeah. 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 That's good. I'd love to hear that. Really love to hear that. So, um, I probably have more, more hair if I chose one or the other. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> That's what levels. All price to pay. Yeah. I don't know those. I've seen those corporate people. They don't always look so good, they look stressed. You, you know what? They don't have any control. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I'm not criticizing. I think there's people in corporate world, they're phenomenal people and, um, yeah. and do great things for big corporations. But I think there's stress everywhere with the climate, the way it is. No one's really in control. I think as an entrepreneur, we feel like we own our own destiny more, but who knows? Yeah. No, yeah, well, no. yeah. And COVID showed us actually none of us own our own destiny. So. Absolutely. I have influence on it, but we certainly are in yeah. the drivers. No. So what do you do outside of work? You have mentioned travel, but is um love to know what that, you know, what does travel good travel mean to you? And what and what else is what else do you do? Yeah. So um yeah, right with travel. We 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 got our son is 10. Our daughter just turned three. Nadia and okay. Vera is his name. Um we got Vera to passport at six weeks old. And he has first stamp at seven weeks old. <laughs> now um, he's been to sixty countries. My daughter's been. I mean, of course, she was uh, isolated due to the pandemic for her first two yeah. years of her life. But uh, she's been to probably now close to now probably about eight or so countries. You say um, your son well, has been to sixty countries. That's correct. Yeah. Six zero. Yeah, that's a lot of countries. I it's mean, I think I travel a lot. I don't know if I can say 60 countries. So yeah. how, are you, how are you doing that? Do you, how do you do that? He's, he's um, I mean, like he had, at the, at the um, uh, age of seven weeks, he uh, took his first trip and he was just, oh, I'm convinced. I'm, I haven't tested this yet, but I'm convinced that he could clear uh, immigration and customs on his own now. It's just a normal <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, we, we just, I, I've always been a, um, History nerd, I've always had an appreciation for other cultures. So we travel, you know, we enjoy um, being travelers, not necessarily tourists. Yeah. Right? So I really want to, you know, of course, you want to see all the, all the big sites and experience, yeah. but really get off the beaten path. And, and yeah. uh, you know, in 2016, we went to Peru and, um, uh, and my son at that time was in kindergarten, I think it was. So you know, really kind of thinking about, okay, now he's getting to the stage where we need to, you know, I'd like to expose him more to local cultures and, you know, just see like how fortunate he is. I, I remember hearing once, Sarah, um, I haven't validated what I'm about to say, but it sounds kind of cool, and maybe it's true. But if you, the minute someone takes their first breath in North America, so when a baby is born in North America, which, um, well, really just Canada or, or the USA, you're automatically in the top 2% of the world as it relates to household income. Just, sure. just by, I mean, you win the lottery, I mean, more. Yeah. Right? Sure. And so sure. I've always seen that. I've been in many third world countries. And, you know, I mean, heck, I go back to India or I have any family there anymore. My ancestry's there. And I often right. think, like, yeah, if my dad hadn't had the cars to leave here, what would that mean for me? What would I be doing? Yeah. Right. So I want, we want to expose our son to that. So this really takes me into the other thing that kind of drives us. So when we were in Peru, we uh, we found a local school and reached out to them and said, and it was a it was a village, like a tiny village, uh, about forty minutes outside of Cusco. Uh, 
just to give you a sense of it, you know, dirt roads um, in the valleys and the largest employer of this town was a bread factory. Right. Right. So we went to the school and um, it's one, you know, a two-room schoolhouse, essentially, uh, a lot of open air you know, facilities at decrepit playground. And when I reached out to them before we left, like, what would we want to come there and would love to help in any ways or anything that you need? And it, it struck me when they said, we need school supplies and toothbrushes. Toothbrushes, what? And so I was fortunate that as a few EO members that were uh, had dental businesses, I reached out to them here in Atlanta, and we filled up an entire suitcase of dental supplies that they were right. gracious enough to donate school supplies. And we get to the school, and um, man, it was just, uh, I, I, you know, for my son, it certainly I think it was reality checks. As I call it, God, these are these kids are my age, and okay. you know they're out here brushing their teeth in an open air sink, and they don't really have a proper playground. And, you know, six grades in one room studying, you know, different subject matters. And um, we decided to turn that into something bigger. So what we realized was, I mentioned earlier, the bread factory was the, the main um, employer. Mm-hmm. And what was happening is a lot of these kids, they'd get to around, you know, fourth, fifth or sixth grade and their parents would pull them out of school. They go to work. And I get yeah. it. I understand why. I mean, you know, they got to earn. Yeah, yeah. But I also, but I also realized that we were fortunate yeah. that the school would be staying at a nice hotel and, if you speak English in a tourist town like Cusco, you're doing all right, relatively speaking. Right. Right. Because that's a skill where now you're getting tipped in, you know, US dollars and you're making yeah, you can uh, make money. wages. Yeah. So I said, man, if we could just figure out a way to, to encourage these kids to convince their parents to let them stay in school, even if my mission was simple, even if it's one more day of education, is that the one day when they finally start to learn right. English? Right. So we thought, all right, the best way to do that is just build them a playground. So we went there with the intention of donating toothbrushes, toothpaste, floss, and, and, and school supplies. And we left um, with the conviction to, to figure out a way to put a playground there that would encourage the kids to come back to school. Right. Um, fast forward, another couple of really good friends of ours here in Atlanta, they're also EO Atlanta members, uh, got together. And you know, as entrepreneurs, like, hey, we're going to sell. This is important to us. And they have kids around the same age as my, as my son. It's important to us to teach them uh, the power of philanthropy and giving. And we pulled it off. We formed a nonprofit called Kalo, K-H-E-L-O. That's the Indian word for play. Right. And it was our mission to uh, build playgrounds in impoverished schools around the world with the hope that it's a hook to keep that child coming back to school for at least one day. We've built now three, currently working on our fourth playground. Uh, we've done one in Mexico, one in Peru, one in uh, uh the puerto rico after a hurricane came through yeah and they're exploring doing one in india potentially one in uh, the western part of ukraine and um philanthropy is uh uh you know i grew up in a family that was very that was very important you know kind of cultural value and thankfully that um, has remained in my dna thankfully my wife feels the same way and uh that, that really drives us we we even fund two scholarships every year our family does uh, at uh georgia state university where i obtained my undergraduate degree in the university of kentucky i'm sorry georgia state graduate degree undergraduate university right. of kentucky. Right. and they're geared towards uh, first generation college students right. so you know, and, and that comes from you know growing up in the hotel industry and seeing um, perpetual cycles of families that were um, unfortunately stuck in in the spiral of of hourly wage earning. Yeah, you know, you're right. When I was, that industry that way. Yeah. Yeah. When I was, I, yeah, I mean, you, you you have exposure yeah. to hotels. When I was in high school, you know, I'd see employees working for my father, and then I'd come back after graduation, even after working in the corporate world, and they were still there 15 years later. I mean, which is great. I mean, that means they enjoy working for dad. But the sad part to me was when, over time, I would go back to visit, and they'd be like, hey, meet my daughter. She just started here as a housekeeper. Again, I'm, I, I'm not belittling housekeeping at all. I have massive uh, respect for anyone yeah. that wants to get out and, and work. and, and do. Yeah. But what can we do to help um, to help start climbing ladders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's why we fund scholarships for first-generation students because man, if, if, that, if, that, if that child can get a college degree, then talk about changing the trajectory of oh, the definitely. next several generations of someone's life. Yeah. 
So that drives us. And then um, the last thing I'll say that drives me is uh, it's just lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really uh, enjoy uh, just learning about uh, not only business, but about just the world in general. So I, I, I set a personal goal every year. I want to do two um, continuing education type courses, not for certifications, but just just to get out there and learn stuff, yeah. right? So yeah. I've done courses through EO. I've done courses unaffiliated with EO. Yeah, um, you know, read quite a bit, and um, just always, you know, kind of keeping the brain you know, as sharp as possible. Definitely, so much there, Andy. So we've, uh, yeah, I love everything you just said. It's like, I mean, you're running a very successful company. You put yourself, you can feel it, 100 into it, and then you're mm. giving so much back. So it's just, um. I love everything you've said. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah, no, it's been really good. So where can people connect with you? If people want to reach out, Andy, what's the best way? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so first is uh, LinkedIn. You can find me just Andy Chopra. Uh, Google it. You can find it. The Banyan Investment Group. Our website is uh, banyan-ig.com. And then our nonprofit website is kalo-play. .org. Mm-hmm. And a um, uh, company emails listed on the website. So if anyone ever wants to reach out directly, um, I'm uh, always happy to connect. Okay. Really, really good. Thank you. Well, yes. Thank you so much, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Yeah. Likewise. I wanted to thank you, Sarah. And I want to thank all the listeners as well. Um, it's an honor to be on here. And uh, I hope there were some key takeaways that would lead to value for your listeners. There definitely were. So I want to thank our audience. If you learned something today or you laughed, um, tell someone about this podcast. We are growing our followers. Um, The quality of our guests is incredible. And um, I think everyone can really benefit from from listening. So once again, Andy, thank you. It's been a very, another exciting episode of ER Atlanta's Taking Flight. See you next time. And so that wraps up another episode. Thank you for joining. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at takingflight.live. For more information about EO Atlanta, visit eoatlanta.org. Special thanks to the following sponsors.